This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I want to lead off this time around by talking a little bit about duck stamps. The duck stamp, formerly known as the Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp, is one of the conservation initiatives that is undeniable in its impact on bird conservation, specifically habitat acquisition for the U.S. National Wildlife Refuge System. The duck stamp has been around for decades, and while it has long been associated with waterfowl hunting, and indeed it is a required purchase for those who wish to participate in waterfowl hunting, in the, in the last decade or so there has been a push for non-consumptive users of the refuge system, namely birders, but also photographers, hikers, etc., to purchase these stamps as a way to contribute to the fund that purchases land for these refuges. It's, it's a simple way to do that. The overhead is low, so a significant portion of that purchase is directly used for conservation efforts. There's not a whole lot of things you can purchase where that is the case. Uh, in many cases, the stamp functions as an entry ticket to many popular national wildlife refuges, so it's useful to that end as well. The Fish and Wildlife Service, unfortunately, does not keep track of how many stamps are purchased by hunters versus how many are purchased by birders and other users. We at the ABA have been encouraging duck stamp purchases through our shop as a way to sort of get a better idea of how many birders are using them. We've had some success with that. Other bird organizations do something similar, uh, notably Black Swamp Bird Observatory in Ohio. The idea being, of course, that you know, making the case that birders are purchasing and using these stamps means that those non-consumptive users deserve to have their priorities acknowledged as much as hunters do. You know, and why, while our habitat protection priorities are actually quite similar, things like access and infrastructure are rather different. So it's nice to have, you know, something we can point to when we want those things addressed. So there are, there are those who will say and have said that birders shouldn't purchase the duck stamp and instead should advocate for a general wildlife stamp. You know, the argument being that birders and photographers and the like are, are not likely to purchase a stamp so closely identified as a hunting stamp. My friend Mike Bergen at 10,000 Birds has eloquently made this case. I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate argument. I even agree with some of it, but, you know, like many birders, that stamp does not exist yet and the current duck stamp is the best that we have. And in fact, a number of past directors of the Fish and Wildlife Service have noted the increasing importance of birders and photographers as duck stamp consumers and attempted to make inroads into our communities. I think we can all agree that it's very positive. It has seemed to become much more of a wildlife stamp. So that's, that's sort of the background, maybe a long background, uh, to a recent change proposed by the Fish and Wildlife Service to require all future duck stamps to include hunting elements. So 
I guess like a decoy or a dog or camouflage or, or whatever. The the current duck stamp has this. I, I happen to think it makes it less appealing, which is saying something because it, it features a wood duck, you know, arguably one of the most striking, gorgeous, amazing species of waterfowl on the planet. It does have a big old dumb decoy right behind it. Yeah, you know, just from an aesthetic point of view, I think it misses the mark a little bit. That wasn't necessarily a hunting pun, but I guess you can take it as that. I am not making any sort of judgment about waterfowl hunting here. I acknowledge the impact on conservation that waterfowl hunting has had necessarily. I might add, if you're going to remove a certain number of individuals from the population, the least you can do is contribute to the habitat needs of those that are left. But I digress. The, The frustrating thing about this is that after all the inroads that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been making in encouraging duck stamp purchases by non hunters, that they would turn around and, I don't know, spurn the right word, snub, maybe. Uh, their ostensible allies this way is, is sort of frustrating. Uh, this view is also shared by former fish and wildlife heads and, and the nonprofit friends of the duck stamp group. And even the artists who compete in the annual duck stamp contest who don't particularly want to include non-natural elements in their images, some for artistic reasons, it must be said, not necessarily, you know, philosophical ones. I will keep an eye on this proposal and let listeners know if there ever comes an option to, to comment on it. I don't think it has reached that stage yet. Uh, We have to make sure that they don't duck us. On the show today, I had a pretty extraordinary experience with a bunch of young birders in Costa Rica a couple weeks ago. I will share some thoughts about it at the end of the show. But first, let's delve into fantasy birding, which does not, it must be said, involve identifying bird vocalizations on Game of Thrones. No, it, it is a fun game that has taken the birding world by storm. Well, a small, well concentrated storm. Fantasy birding creator Matt Smith is here to talk to me after this week's Red Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of July and the first part of August 2019. I'll lead off this week with an older record, but one that is pretty exciting nonetheless as it pertains to a potential first ABA area record. A common wood pigeon was photographed near Romaine, Quebec in May. The photo of this European vagrant was only made public recently. Common wood pigeon is, as the name implies, a common park bird in much of Europe, but pigeons are strong flyers and notoriously good at dispersal, so it seems awfully likely that this record represents a natural vagrant, a first for the province, and as I said earlier, a first for the ABA area. And right in the time frame that we usually see Euro strays in eastern Canada as well. A few states had first to report for this period, including a female Rivoli's hummingbird at a feeder and glacier national park in Montana. That represents a first there. Iowa's first record of Hearman's Goal, a young bird discovered at Sailorville Reservoir in Polk County. Of all the North American goal species, Hearman's is among the least likely to be a vagrant, though there are a small handful of records scattered across the Midwest and the eastern part of the continent. In North Carolina, the state's first record of Pacific Golden Plover was found near Cape Point on Cape Hatteras National Seashore in Dare County. This is one of those species that probably occurs more regularly than is reported, but identification can be very tough, so kudos to the birders involved there. Illinois also gets a mention, as that state's first record of Little Stint was seen in Fulton County in the middle of that state, hearkening the beginning of stint season and the coming of the first big push of shorebird migrants. Fall migration is definitely on. 
These were only the highlights of a pretty busy couple of weeks in the ABA area. For the entire roundup, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning, or you can join our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Fantasy sports is big business these days, especially now that participants no longer have to do the work by hand. It's so popular that managing these virtual worlds based on real-world data has spread beyond sports. Fantasy birding, for instance, has become an obsession among a growing cadre of real birders. It has been featured in a number of general interest articles. It was lightly mocked on the NPR show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, And it's taken a hold of a handful of my colleagues at the ABA uh, creator Matt Smith, a computer programmer and birder, is here to talk about that wild ride. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Nate. Good to be here. Yeah. So, so for people who who might not know how fantasy birding works, can you break it down a little? Absolutely. So, uh, basic concept is uh, we're using eBirds data, um, mm-hmm. and you are choosing locate real world locations virtually. So, so. In the standard big year game, you're picking a new spot on the map every day, and you're getting credit for the birds that are e-birded there in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might say, tomorrow I want to go birding at Cape May, and uh, you, you pick that spot, you sit back the following day and watch <laughs> the checklists roll in. Roll in. Yeah. How, how big is the... Uh parameter of the uh, area so you you can't you, i mean you're obviously not choosing just one right. hot spot like cape may hawk watch or whatever you've got you're kind of taking into account a lot of the the spots within a certain area yeah honestly that was one of the trickiest uh, things to figure out about the game initially was you know there, there's enough inconsistency in how birds are reported to ebird that hmm. um, that it's tough to make sure that you're getting credit for or you know, if if you just pick a, a particular hotspot, and then somebody ends up listing a, a great bird from a you know personal location that they've set up, right? We don't want you to lose that those points. It's sort of an issue that you know eBird reviewers have too. The idea that people not using hotspots uh, when they absolutely yeah. should—it's kind of an annoyance. I'm sure it must be annoying to people who are looking to get you know credit for for birds that are that are in that area as well. Yeah. So fortunately. Ebird has got a terrific API um, that mm-hmm. fantasy birding taps into, and and one of the methods they provide is the ability to to find all birds that have been reported uh, within a certain radius of any location. Um, yeah. So you know, in the in the fantasy birding big year game, uh, you get ten kilometers by default oh, as your yeah. radius. So if it's you like a, a double you, CBC, <laughs> absolutely. So you can drop that pin anywhere on the map. Um, and you know, whatever is reported within 10 kilometers, you'll, you'll get those birds. Cool. And for people who may not be, you know, aware of fantasy sports in general, it's, it's sort of similar, you know, you, you have a league of people, you choose real athletes and based on Mm -hmm. how they perform in real games on a a number of statistical categories, you get those points. How is, how is fantasy birding sort of similar to, or, or different than that? Well, I, I would say that the key difference is that in some sense, we are all, athletes (laughs) athletes <laughs> yeah in the world yeah. so you know any one of us has the ability to go out and and stick up a list on ebird that that leads to some to plenty of intrigue in the game <laughs> because you know we're all over the country you know at, at any, on any given day somebody meet, might be like hey 
you know, I'm I'm headed out in real life today to go check on a long-eared owl. Um, so anybody who wants to follow me in fantasy should should you know drop your pin around here, <laughs> right here, yeah, which is which is <laughs> or great. roughly, yeah, yeah, which is very cool because you know not only does it encourage a certain camaraderie uh, mm-hmm. among us, but it also uh, you know we're, we're getting these real-world insights. Um, from our new friends about uh-huh. uh, what birds are where and, and what it's like going to see them for real. So, so how did you come up with the idea in the first place? Oh, uh, well, it's kind of uh, fantasy birding is, is kind of the product of, uh, of a frustrated birder. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, I got pretty deep as a kid uh, slash young person into listing and traveling Mm-hmm. Um, and then I settled down and had a few kids and, um, and, you know, my, let's say my, my range gradually, uh, <laughs> got restricted. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so during that time, eBird became a thing, you know, and, and every time I would go on there and fool around with their maps and their data, uh, I would get these pangs of jealousy about, uh, <laughs> birds that other people were seeing at the same time. I've always been a baseball fan. You know, baseball is kind of the the ultimate game for um, you know, the ultimate sport for data heads. Right, absolutely. Uh, and last year, I put together this pretty ridiculous alternative fantasy baseball league that I ran. And while looking at eBird at some point during that time, I it occurred to me, you know, why not take all that beautiful data, see if we can gamify it so that. <laughs> You know, all of us armchair birders can live vicariously through through e-birders in these mouthwatering exotic destinations. And and eBird makes that very easy, doesn't it? I mean, you, you oh. mentioned their their API. I mean, they've they make that stuff public so that you know specifically people can sort of find ways to use that yeah. in in you know ways that are not necessarily for science, but are for for sort of the fun of birding. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, what, one of my great hopes with fantasy birding is that I'll kind of spread some awareness um, about the importance of citizen science in general um, and, you know, of contributing to, to portals like this. And I, and I think I'm doing that. I, I think mm-hmm. uh, a lot more people now understand the real finer points of, of how eBird works. Yeah, that's part of the nice of, of hotspots as opposed to personal locations, for example. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, that's been a battle that reviewers like my, like myself have been uh, fighting for for right. oh my goodness forever. And yeah. also, also we'll, we're all learning uh, very very well what areas are under under eBirded. Uh, yeah. So uh, you know Hawaii, for example, is a real thorn in the side for a lot of us because if if a tour is not passing through, um, it's really tough to get a lot of those super desirable birds um yeah so we're kind of looking for ways some of us are to gently reach out to the you know the irl uh bird community <laughs> over there yeah and um encourage that you know say look look at all this interest um in your birds you know you, you guys should really get on to <laughs> you need to go out and see them more regularly <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 so i mean it really does seem like it's it's struck a chord with people has the response to it been surprising at all 
Oh my gosh! I mean, we're we've so far exceeded my expectations. <laughs> it's like in, it's 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 surreal uh, by now. Yeah, I thought that I was like way out on the fringe of geekery, and maybe <laughs> maybe like a handful. Never of, underestimate birds. You know, I know right? <laughs> as far as geekery goes. That's, that's good uh, yeah, I thought maybe a handful of people would really would really get into it like I have. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, birders are kind of that sweet spot of, um, yeah, they love data. They love geeking mm-hmm. out over data. Um, but they also, you know, they, they, a lot of them are really, have, are really eager for more community, um, mm-hmm. because especially in some more remote areas, um, it can be a pretty lonely, uh, thing to be involved in. So yeah. I think that's been part of the appeal. Once I reached a sort of critical mass um, on, uh, you know, we've got these little communities on on Facebook and on yeah, yeah, yeah. Slack and so on. Uh, people just, you know, that that helped to sell it. People saw the energy there. It's been fascinating. You know, it even came back to us at the ABA. Um, we had a woman who was a participant on our adult bird camp in West Virginia mm. who learned about that event because she heard the wait wait don't tell me oh wow thing <laughs> and then she went awesome. and googled like fantasy birding and i guess she found the article the 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 piece that you wrote for the airy yeah maybe uh, yeah. it's young birder program and then you know on the sidebar was uh was the event so hey you're, it's helping us out <laughs> super cool i'm glad to hear that yeah yeah, yeah I, you know i hear regularly from people um who might not have been able to do real life birding as much as they wanted because mm-hmm. of you know their kids or their older people um they got restricted mobility for one reason or another or they just they just didn't have a great concept of of what all was out there and yeah um yeah you know if i've kind of helped to kindle the or rekindle the passion for even a few of those people i feel pretty good about about the whole thing yeah have you seen have you seen fantasy birding impact people sort of in real life birding in significant ways that's a good question uh it's it's been really fascinating to see the ways it's spilled over into real life um i know that that there's been a number of checklists submitted that would not have been submitted if it weren't for for fan birding uh there's been a lot more interest in things like pelagic trips um Hmm. we've had a you know, we've had a couple of people, poor, poor Brian Patterson has had to field, field a couple of calls from people yeah, at, heard, you know, asking whether a, a pledge is going out and then having to reveal that they're not like literally going to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things like that. Uh, but I, I think we're, we're kind of feeling our way into a, a good relationship between. Yeah, it's. It's because um, John Lowry, who is the sound engineer yeah. for this podcast and does the, a lot of the production, uh, when I told him that I was talking to you about this, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, it was because of fantasy birding that I decided to go chase the Antillian palm swift that was down yeah. in the Keys <laughs> yeah. last week. So, yeah, it's totally encouraging him to, well, like you said, he probably put his marker on that spot <laughs> for that day and then made sure that he was going to count that bird both in real life and... And yep. yeah, on, on, for the fantasy point, which is uh, pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. Has has this project 
taught you anything about how how people bird? You know, I, I remember you you sharing in the fantasy birding Facebook group. Mm -hmm. uh, this may have been a month or so ago. Uh, you know, sort of a heat map of what places in the U.S. Yeah. people have chosen to play, and you know, it was, it was pretty predictable. You know, lots right. of people hitting the you know traditional ABA area hotspots. Is that what you usually see, or do people take flyers on random spots? You know, it's it's a great question and and one that I. I need to study in more depth. I, definitely, if you look at the overall patterns, you know it's it's the vagrant traps, it's the mm -hmm. um, the traditional um, migration hotspots, the high islands and the Cape Mays right. and so on, um, and it's the places where the endemics are found. Um, yeah. But you know, if I pull up that map of of where fan burgers are on any given day, I'll I'll see people in random places like Kentucky or. Hmm. Uh, what have you, you know, people will take flyers on places like, you know, the Northwest territories, just, just to see what's up there. You know, the yeah. people are just exploring, which is awesome. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I, I, this, a few years ago, eBird put out like a, uh, a map of like underbirded places and, mm -hmm. um, for each underbirded counties for each area. And, um, you know, it was it, like, like this, it was pretty predictable. Like for the most part, people don't necessarily like to bird, too far away from their their homes so it was like it was a map of ebird checklist density it was also like a map of population density which was kind of neat um yeah, yeah i imagine that it, it's slightly different when you're talking about fantasy birding because some of the places that people are are choosing are not high density areas i'm thinking like high island or um you know the coast of or, or any of the pelagic places yeah um, right I, it's just i, I you said that Birders sort of like to geek out about data. We also like to geek out about maps and, uh, yeah. and asking why and how bird and birder distribution manifests in the way that it does. Um, yeah. That's been sort of the interesting thing for me as a, I don't, I don't play fantasy birding not because I don't I have anything against it. I think it's really cool the way people are engaging with birds. Um, it's mostly because I'm sort of lazy and wouldn't be able to do it every <laughs> single day. But um, I, I enjoy like watching from the sidelines and seeing what that says about where people are birding and what people are seeing. Um, yeah. It's It's been interesting. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm looking for every angle I can find to mm -hmm. just to slip little educational components into it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really encouraging people to use this as a learning tool. You know, I've got it interfacing with wikipedia and, and with um, yeah with the tools at cornell and um so that you can you can always go down that rabbit hole of learning more about the birds that you're seeing mm -hmm. that is one of the neat things about it is that the the website is very slick like it's very well put together and there's a lot of cool information on there and that's going to be a part of why this particular you know project this particular initiative seems to have grabbed people as well i imagine Thank you. So, so what kind of strategies do you see people trying? You know, as as the fantasy birding game master, do you, do you see some that work better than others? We're kind of in uncharted waters. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. In the yeah. first year, and you know, there's been there's been big bird, big year birders in real life, but mm -hmm. just a, a very select few of them because uh, it takes a ton of time and a ton of resources. There's a lot of just rarity chasing that goes on. So, you yeah. know, you can always pull up the hotline and see uh, which code three or code four or code five birds have been reported in the area mm -hmm. recently. And you can just, you know, decide to chase them on that next day with one click of a button. Um, but 
as we're getting more into the year, and again, I'm just talking about the ABA big year here, but we've also got, I should be sure to mention, we've got a global big year. Uh, we can see you know, how many of the 10,000 birds in the world you can track down. Uh, we've got these big day games where you actually plan a route um, for a single oh, cool. day, and it, it takes your travel time into account. But for the big year, uh, you know, now that we're into August, we've got a couple people who have already crossed the 800 mark for the ABA wow. year, which is nuts. Um, and so those last, you know, we're, we're within, they're within like 30 birds or something of the real life record. <laughs> but those last few are getting real hard to come. Yeah, uh, it very much mirrors an actual big, big year. Yeah, you know, when you is... kind of nailed down 80% of what you're going to see right. by the you know end of July, and now you're just picking up little things here and there, and that can be that can be a real crapshoot. Exactly, and so we got a lot. Of, you know, a lot of us are tracking down those last few regular birds. You know, mm-hmm. things, things that things like long-eared owl or um, some of the yeah. spar- some of the sparrows that uh, might be widely distributed, but but pretty tough to predict whether they be birded on any given day. Uh, we're playing that dance at the same time that we're keeping an eye out for vagrants and we're, you know, we've got all the pelagics marked on our calendar so we can be sure. Yeah. To <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. My, my goal was, was, you know, to have, to have the, the overall rhythm of it turn out to be, to be pretty similar to what would happen in a real big year. And mm-hmm. um, it was, there was a lot of guesswork involved in that, but it seems yeah. like, did a decent job yeah so how did you manage uh in places where there isn't a lot of internet access and there aren't a lot of ebird checklists going in i'm thinking specifically of the annual uh boat trip to atu yeah Um, i remember a lot of consternation (laughs) about people not receiving their checklists when they when they you know place that area does it kind of back backlog you choose that date uh, but then when the checklists come in on that day, you like you could be adding checklists for a week or two afterwards. That's right. So yeah, yeah so that that attitude trip, like from day one, I always knew that was going to be a real <laughs> challenge, um, and was really going to stretch what was possible in the game. Um, and uh, you know, actually, it it um, it turned out this year that we were getting more or less daily up- updates from attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, although the eBird checklists didn't come in until later, so at least we were able to keep tabs on it. But yeah, yeah. I've got it set up now so that um, although the game is not able to automatically check your birds for you um, after 48 hours, because um, there's, there's just not a good way to do that, um, you can always go in, uh, you can go back indefinitely far um, and oh. either click a check hotspots button that will you know check all hotspots in your radius for that date and see if you added anything new or you can go out and find uh, an actual checklist on eBird whether it's from a hotspot or a personal location plug hmm. in that ID and and get credit for it if it counts that's really clever yeah we've worked out a lot of the kinks now yeah yeah so so speaking for yourself um do you think fantasy birding has enhanced your own birding experience? Uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> one of the, I, there's a couple of different reactions I predictably get when people first learn about this. And one of them mm-hmm. is, um, oh, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, it, <laughs> well, so is fantasy sports <laughs> when you really think about it. <laughs> I know, I know. And, but, you know, people have the, the specific 
objection that like surely this is going to take away from real birding and, and people right. are going to be like sitting in their basements uh, <laughs> staring at, at birds on the screen instead of getting out and I, I have absolutely zero evidence for that happening yeah. so far you know maybe maybe it really does work that way for some people uh, but for me I've never found that like pursuing a passion in one way detracts from, from pursuing yeah. or enjoying it in another way so for me I have found myself like all the more curious about and interested in the the birds that I see in real life. You know, I'll see yeah. something swing through my yard, like a, uh, I don't know, a, a black pole warbler. And I'll think, Hey, I've got a little bit of a better idea now of where that guy is coming from and where he's going. I can, you know, I've, I've seen him on the map. I know a little bit more about the boreal forest. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it makes me feel more connected to to birds as a whole. Matt Smith is the creator of Fantasy Birding. You can give it a try if you haven't already at fantasybirding.com. Yeah, congrats on striking a nerve in the birding world and uh, thanks for talking to me about it. My pleasure, Nate. A couple weeks ago, I had the great fortune to be a leader for a teen birding camp in Costa Rica. And well, The fact that it was Costa Rica would have been enough, to be honest. Uh, There's a reason that that country is well thought of among birders around the world and is, you know, for a great many birders, myself included, their first introduction to the wonders of neotropical birding. Costa Rica has established itself as a real destination for ecotourism and especially birders over the decades, and they know what works. For the campers, none of whom had been birding in the tropics before, this was something of an ideal situation. I remember my first time in the tropics as a pretty keen birder who had only ever come as close as South Texas or South Florida. I remember how overwhelming it was, entirely in a good way. Even something as simple as the whole host of new birds sitting on power lines as you drive from place to place. It's, it's seeing your first parrot screaming like a maniac across the sky or the first mixed flock where a, a rush of birds moves past you and you and the person standing right next to you end up with three or four species that the other one didn't even see. But you don't care because the stuff that you saw was so incredible. It's standing in front of a bank of hummingbird feeders and watching six or seven species coming in at once. These are the sort of birding memories that absolutely stick with you. So it was incredibly gratifying to me as a person who has been fortunate enough to go to the tropics a few times now to be able to see all of these things through the eyes of the kids participating in this camp, to watch their eyes open to all of the possibilities that birding travel affords, a deeper understanding of places and cultures and conservation opportunities and challenges and and the birds, my God, the birds, the sort of technicolor tropical species that are ripped out of your field guide and thrown out on the landscape in front of you in flesh and feathers, jacamars and euphonias and motmots and wood creepers and ant birds and the whole lot. I sat on a panel a couple of years ago at the biggest week of American Birding with Chuck Hagner, who was at the time the editor-in-chief of Birdwatching Magazine and is now the author of the upcoming ABA Field Guide to Birds of Wisconsin, so be on the lookout for that. The The topic was the book, Good Birders Still Don't Wear White. We had all contributed chapters. And this panel was actually recorded for the podcast, so if you want to go back in the archives, you can actually listen to it yourself. 
Anyway, Chuck said something about birding travel that resonates with me to this day. He said that one of the things he loves is that once he goes to a place, he forever feels tied to that place. He cares a little more about its birds and its people and their challenges. I feel that too. I pay a little bit closer attention to every place I've ever been to. It's unavoidable. And I got to watch that happen in real time to a bunch of young people. And more, I got to be a part of it too. And that made the experience more meaningful to me than any life bird I could have picked up down there. Though admittedly, the bear-crowned ant bird was pretty sweet. So thank you to Tyler and Jack and Cooper and Haley and Sarah and Case and Quincy and Faith and Carson and Adam and Story. Uh, thanks for letting me come along with you and be a part of your experience. I hope it's not the last time you get to see the tropics. I get the feeling that it won't be. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and the many other free resources that the ABA provides the birding community, please consider joining the ABA. Becoming a member of the ABA means that you are part of a global community of birders and bird watchers working together to make the world a better place for birds and those of us who love them. You can learn more about joining the ABA at aba.org join or sign up for an e-membership at aba.org e-member. The following people deserve a special shout out. Philip Robinson of El Lago, Texas, Ben and Jody Carruthers of Springfield, Missouri, William Luckhart of Brooklyn, New York, Sarah Camus of Helena, Montana, and Susan Downey and Carlos Horquera of Louisville, Colorado. All of whom recently joined the ABA noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks so much and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He points out that if the duck stamp is going to go all out to include hunting images to appeal to waterfowl hunters, you know, why stop at decoys? You want to keep track of the best places on the continent to hunt waterfowl from year to year and provide that alongside the stamp itself, sort of like a duck stamp luck map. Technical production is by John Lowry, who knows that duck hunters have to get up really early to get to their blinds it can be exhausting, so you need to know the best places out there in the swamp to, to take a little snooze. So you will probably need a duck stamp muck nap luck map. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They say these hunters aren't going to carry their own pillows out to the blinds. That's absurd. They need something that is built in. You know, maybe, maybe something that's built into the hat. Something like a duck stamp muck nap luck map tup cap. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know what? This was a bad idea. This was not a great bit. It was sort of a, a load of a duck stamp, muck nap, luck map, tuck cap, sucky crap. I'm sorry. I will endeavor to do better next time. You don't have to look forward to a duck stamp, muck nap, luck map, tuck cap, sucky crap recap. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.